Okay, so this is episode 4 of Hellspan. I just finished the three-part series of The Circadian Code by Dr. Sachin Panda. And this time, I'm going to be talking about another code, which is the Diabetes Code by Dr. Jason Fung. Now, Jason Fung is a nephrologist from Canada, and he is highly regarded as one of the leading experts in the field of diabetes. If you want to learn more about Jason Fung, you can go to his website, which is thefastingmethod.com. Or if you just want to hear him talk, you can go to YouTube and look up some of his keynote addresses. So before I get into the book, I simply wanted to share a story. So when I was in medical school, we were about to start rounding on patients and our attending, our attending asked us the question, what is diabetes? So as medical students, we obviously know what diabetes is and we're, we're, we're just throwing out answers. So insulin resistance, autoimmune disease, body can't make insulin, your body can't use insulin, high blood glucose, we're, we're throwing out answers. And none of the answers that we were giving was what he was looking for. So I, w- I was thinking to myself, and I said to him, which diabetes are you talking about? Because there are marked differences between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And he said, well, just diabetes in general. So we're still thinking, and he eventually just gives us his answer. So n- none of the answers we were giving were wrong. He was just looking for something more specific. So in his words, he's stating that diabetes is a multifactorial, polygenic, metabolic disease marked by hyperglycemia. So if we break that down really quick, multifactorial, there are a lot of things that contribute to diabetes, not just lifestyle, not just the genetics. There's a lot of things that may be contributing to it. Polygenic, meaning there are a lot of genes that are associated with diabetes and developing diabetes. For example, we know that HLA, DR3, DR4 are associated with developing diabetes. Metabolic, as you'll find out, this is a metabolic disease marked by hyperglycemia. So hyperglycemia is high glucose in our blood, and this is a very important common feature of both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So when I get into the book, we're going to be discussing more about the differences between type 1 and type 2. But for now, we understand that hyperglycemia is a common theme in in both type 1 and type 2. So he starts out the diabetic code by laying out a foundation which we can build upon. So he goes into the deep history of diabetes and insulin and how it was discovered. And I thought it was super fascinating, so I wanted to share with it, share you, share it with you. So it wasn't until two, it was way back in 250 BC, where there was a Greek physician, his name was uh, Apollonius of Memphis, where he, he was the one who termed the coin diabetes. And diabetes by itself just means excess urination. So that's what diabetes, you know the term diabetes mellitus. So he, he coined the term diabetes by itself, which just means excess of urination. And it wasn't until 1675 where a man named Thomas Willis added the term mellitus. So mellitus means from honey. So this is essentially excessive urination from honey, if you want to translate diabetes mellitus. That's what it actually means. So later on in the first century AD, there was a Greek physician, his name was Arateus of Cappadocia, and he wrote about the classic description of type 1 diabetes and what he was what he was seeing, and he described type 1 diabetes as, quote, a melting down of flesh and limbs into urine. So this is an interesting way to describe the diabetes, and he further wrote in his book that, quote, life with diabetes is short, disgusting, and painful. So he was right on point about diabetes. Fortunately, we've progressed a long way since 1st century AD. And 
one of the common themes is that diabetes, it's no longer a death sentence anymore. It unfortunately does shorten our lives by about five to eight years. And you also have a 10 times risk of develop, developing cor- coronary vascular disease. So he described it again as a life. Life is a short, disgusting, and, and painful. So luckily, we've made some advancements on diabetes, and we know this is no longer the case. So in, 19, in 1797, there was a military surgeon, John Rollo, who became the first physician to formulate a treatment that carried any reasonable ex- expectation, expectational expectation of success. So what he did was he observed that there was improvement in diabetic patients eating an all-meat diet. So this extremely low-carbohydrate diet was the first diabetic treatment of its kind. So this guy, John Rollo, the Scottish military surgeon, he was doing carnivore diet before it became cool. And later on, this guy named Apollinaire Bouchardat, I don't know, a lot of these names are hard to pronounce, he, disco- he discovered that periodic starvation during the Franco-Prussian War reduced urinary glucose. And what he did in his, he laid out this diabetes book called uh, Glycosuria or Diabetes Mellitus. He laid out his dietary strategy, which forbade all food high in sugars and starches. So we're, slow, we're slowly getting, getting to where we want. This is back in the 18, late 1800s. And uh, moving forward into 1889, the first, there was an experiment done by these two doctors named Maring and Minkowiski at the University of Strasbourg. And what they did was they exper- experimentally removed a dog's pancreas. So we'll get into insulin and pancreas and, and all that. But what they did was they removed this dog's pancreas. And what they saw was that this dog began to urinate frequently, which was commonly recognized as a symptom of underlying diabetes. And what they did was they tested the urine to confirm the high sugar content. So there was a lot of glucose in the urine. Moving forward into 1910, there was this man by the name of Sir Edward Sharpie Schaefer. And he is sometimes regarded as the founder of endocrinology. And what he proposed was that there was a there was a deficiency of a single hormone in our body called insulin, which was responsible for diabetes. Now, cool term, the word insulin comes from the Latin insula, which means island, as this hormone is produced in cells called the islets of Langerhans in the pancreas. So this is this is a you know a breakthrough. We understand that insulin has something to do with diabetes, and we know that it's coming from the pancreas, and we know that it there's a specific cell in our pancreas called the beta cell that is secreting this insulin. So this was back in 1910. So we're slowly learning more about diabetes and insulin and it was in 1921, which we had the discovery of the century. So, 1921, there was two. There was three doctors: Dr. Frederick Banting, Charles Best, and John McLeod. These three doctors, they made a big breakthrough discovery of insulin at the University of Toronto, in back again in 1921. What they did was, they isolated insulin from pancreas from the pancreas of cows. And they found a way to purify it. They eventually gave, gave it to a boy named Leonard Thompson. He, Leonard Thompson was this 14-year-old boy with type 1 diabetes. And what, what happened was he weighed only 65 pounds when he started the insulin injections. And eventually, his, symptom, his signs and symptoms, they began to disappear. And he began to regain normal weight. So this was really the, big, the breakthrough of insulin 
and they ended up getting a Nobel Peace Prize for physiology or medicine in 1923. And by that time, 25,000 patients were being treated with injected insulin. So that is that is really how insulin got founded. It, it was founded in University of Toronto by these three these three PhDs or doctors, and they realized that you can take insulin from this cow, purify it, and give it to humans, and it'll help treat their diabetes, help them gain weight, and help them stop you know stop urinating so much and uh, diabe- you know drinking so much as well. That's another clinical feature of diabetes: excessive urine thirst and excessive urination. So in nineteen thirty six we're still we're still moving forward. So that was nineteen twenty three. Nineteen thirty six there was this man by the name of Sir Harold Percival Hemsworth Hemsworth and he categorized diabetes based on insulin sensitivity. So even though we discovered insulin, there was still this problem between type one and type two. We weren't really sure. Like some people were some people that were being treated were it was working on that you know, they were sensitive to it others they were insulin insensitive so it wasn't until 1959 where we finally differentiated the types of diabetes that were recognized so type 1 or insulin dependent and type 2 which is non-insulin dependent so although these terms were not entirely accurate because many many of the patients type 2 they were also needed to prescribe insulin and you'll find that that there are a lot of diabetic drugs for type 2s but eventually if their diabetes gets out of the control, they they need they need insulin. Once uh, once you re- reach a certain level, so so that's really the history of diabetes and insulin. I don't know if you found that interesting, but I did. So we're looking at the twenty first century plague. So he states here that diabetes has increased significantly in both sexes, every age group, every racial group, and every ethnic group, and all educational levels. Now, normally, type 2 diabetes attacks younger and younger patients. And pediatric, no, sorry, type 2 diabetes, it's attacking younger and younger patients. So usually we we say the term type 2 diabetes as adult onset, but we're now realizing that people who are developing diabetes are getting younger and younger. So pediatric clients, once the sole domain of type 1 diabetes, are now overrun with the epidemic of obese adolescents with type 2 diabetes. So we're seeing that it's no longer adult onset or or child onset. This is this type 2 diabetes is affecting younger and younger patients. And he states here that the problem is not trivial. In the United States, 14.3% of adults have type 2 diabetes and 38% of the population has pre-diabetes. So literally 52.3% of people are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. And this means that the first time in history, for the first time in history, more people have the more people have died have the disease than they, than not. So, this is really kind of the new norm, pre-diabetes and diabetes. It's just kind of this new norm that we're we're kind of accepting. And the worst part about it is that the prevalence of type two diabetes has increased really only in the past forty years. And this is making it clear that this is not a genetic disease or some part of normal aging, but it's really a lifestyle issue. So this is not really the genetics driving this disease. It's really you know, this this lifestyle that we're all living. So that that's essentially the first chapter of diabetes. He lays out the history. And in the next section, we really talk about the differences between type 1 and type 2. So you may be familiar with diabetes. You, you may be not. Um, 
but before we talk about the differences between type 1 and type 2, like the facts, we're going to be talking about diagnosing diabetes. So you may heard the term A1C, hemoglobin A1C. This is one of the tests, most commonly used tests for diagnosing diabetes. So hemoglobin is this molecule in our body that carries oxygen in our blood. And what happens when we have so much glucose in our blood is that glucose ends up attaching to these hemoglobin molecules and we can screen diabetes by using this A1C marker. So the amount of glucose that is attached to our hemoglobin or you know, on top of our, our red blood cells. So the hemoglobin is in our red blood cells. And we see that if you have a level over 6.5 or 6.4 and above, you, you have, you're clinically have diabetes. So glucose molecules, they attach to the hemoglobin. And by measuring this A1C, the level gives you your, a certain a three-month period which with the glucose is in your blood. So re, I'm trying to say is glucose lasts, uh, red blood cells last about 120 days in our body. So this A1C, it's going to reflect the body's average level of the blood glucose over about three months. So that is the main way we're diagnosing diabetes is with this A1C. Now, there are other methods to diagnose as well. For example, we can do a random blood glucose test. So if you have a level over 126 milligrams per deciliter, this is a fasting blood glucose. If your level is over 126, you are considered diabetic. Now, if you have an oral glucose tolerance test, this is another way to diagnose diabetes, but it's a lot more complicated and we don't really use it anymore. The patient is asked to ingest a standard test dose of 75 grams of glucose. And if you have a level of 200 milligrams per deciliter, once your blood glucose is taken two hours later, you are considered diabetic. So those are the three main things that can test for diabetes. Your A1C, your fasting blood glucose, and then an oral glucose tolerance test. So the A1C, which I talked about kind of at a a greater length, this is the test that we're mainly using now because it's easy it's cheaper and you you get your results a lot faster. So type 1 diabetes, the simple facts. So type 1 diabetes, it is an autoimmune disease, meaning that your body's own immune system damages the cells that secrete insulin. So again, we're talking about the beta cells in our pancreas. We know that there was a strong genetic predisposition to diabetes, but there are other environmental agents that he states may play a role. So he states that sensitivity to cow's milk Wheat protein and low vitamin D may be three other factors that contribute to type 1 diabetes. We also know that diabetes often occurs with other autoimmune diseases, for example, Graves' disease or vitiligo. And we also know that the, the cornerstone is really a lack of insulin. So if we want to treat type 1 diabetes adequately, we just need to replace the hormone, insulin. And as I mentioned, diabetes reduces life expectancy by about five to eight years and also carries uh, 10 times the risk of heart disease compared to healthy patients. So that's type 1 diabetes. Now as far as type 2, we know that type 2, it accounts for 90 to 95 percent, so the overwhelming majority of diabetes cases worldwide. And we know that in in type 2 diabetes, the problem is not insulin production, it is the resistance. So you may hear the term insulin resistance. So the failure of insulin to lower blood glucose is called insulin resistance. And this happens in type 2 diabetes. And I I spoke about this a little bit in the circadian code. 
but really this is this is all about your body not being not being able to respond to the signal of insulin and what happens is your ins- because you're not responding to the signal more and more insulin needs to be secreted from your pancreas so this is a big difference between type 1 and type 2 insulin levels in type 2 are high while insulin levels in type 1 are basically zero so that is one of the main differences in type 1 and type 2 and because the there's different causes between type 1 and type 2 they do require different cures so in insulin type 1 we're simply replacing the insulin type 2 there's a lot of different diabetic drugs that are being used to help treat type 2 diabetes that work via different mechanisms so i just wanted to run through a quick whole body effect of what's happening to diabetes so there are both microvascular and macrovascular complications of type one of both diabetes and i wanted to start with the microvascular meaning our small blood vessels which ones are being affected so we're going to be starting with the eye retinopathy is the so diabetes is the leading cause of blindness in the united states and people with diabetes often develop this disease retinopathy so what happens is these diabetes when when someone develops diabetes they end up weakening these small retinal blood vessels in our eyes. And what happens is it causes blood and other fluids to leak out of the eye. And what happens is your body responds by making new blood vessels, but unfortunately these vessels that are being made are fragile and easily broken. And in severe cases, the scar there's, you end up developing scar tissue from this bleeding. And this scar tissue can lift the retina and pull it away from its normal position. And this will ultimately ultimately lead to blindness. So approximately 10,000 new cases of blindness in the United States are caused by retinopathy each year. So 10,000 new cases of blindness. And again, this is the leading cause of blindness in the United States. So that is retinopathy. Now we're going to be talking about problems with the kidney, which is nephropathy. So diabetes is considered the leading cause of end-stage renal disease in the United States. And it accounted for more than 44% of all new cases in 2005. So patients whose, whose kidneys, they lose about, if, the, if their kidney function drops below 90%, meaning they've lost 90% of their function, you end up requiring dialysis. And you, you, you need dialysis basically to, save, to keep you alive. You need about four hours of dialysis three times per week. So in, indefinitely or else toxic, because this is one of the functions of the kidney is is clearing out toxins in our blood. It has a lot of other functions, obviously, but this is one of the main functions. And unless you get a, a transplant, kidney transplant, you're going to be, end up becoming uh, on, dia- on dialysis, which is you know pretty debilitating. Again, four hours of dialysis, three times per week. So that is the kidney. We talked about the eye, the kidney, now neuropathy. So we're talking about nerves now. So there's many different types of diabetic nerve damage. But you will often hear this pattern of stock and glove distribution, meaning that this diabetes diabetes is really affecting our hands and our arms as well as our feet. So a lot of these patients will complain of tingling, numbness, burning, pain. And as I mentioned, the, this, this pain is in diabetic neuropathy is very debilitating. And even the most powerful painkillers cannot, cannot really control this pain. And this is also... Uh, uh, what contributes to the amputation so you may know someone with diabetes who had to get their leg amputated and what happens is let's say we're in the kitchen and we happen to stub our toe 
we're going to be able to feel that pain. But unfortunately, diabetics, they don't feel this pain. And what happens with not feeling this any, any trauma in your, in your foot is you end up developing an ulcer and it becomes infected. And the only way to spread, to, to inhibit this ulcer from getting worse is this amputation. So it's this, you, you don't realize that you're getting damage in your foot and you develop, uh, you know, this diabetic foot, which is essentially, uh, uh, something called a Charcot foot, which is, uh, a type of foot disease that progresses to the point where patients are really not able to walk and they even require amputation sometimes. So those are the microvascular. Now I just wanted to run through the macrovascular complications. So this is a known fact. Atherosclerosis, heart disease, stroke, peripheral vascular disease. These are all way increased in, in diabetes. So these are some of the mac macrovascular complications atherosclerosis, heart disease, stroke, and peripheral vascular disease. So those are the, the macrovascular. Now, other complications of diabetes, I wanted to talk about uh, Alzheimer's, cancer, fatty liver disease, in infections. These are all other complications going on. So recently, the term type 3 diabetes has been, has been going around in the news and on, on you know, PubMed. You see this term type 3 diabetes. Now, in the circadian code, I talked a little bit about the pathology of Alzheimer's. There's two main pathologies associated with Alzheimer's. One of them is the accumulation of hyperphosphorylated tau inside the neuron. The second one is the accumulation of beta amyloid outside the cell. And what people are realizing is that Alzheimer's, it may just be a simple fact that our, our brain is not able to use glucose as efficiently as when we were younger. So... Alzheimer's disease, he, he writes, may reflect the inability to use glucose normally, perhaps a type of selective insulin resistance in the brain. So if you hear the term type 3 diabetes, they're, they're really referring to Alzheimer's because this may be one of the hypotheses of Alzheimer's. So this, that, that was Alzheimer's, and as I mentioned, more predisposed to cancer, fatty liver disease, infections, skin and nail conditions, erectile dysfunction, and PCOS, so polycystic ovarian syndrome. And in, P in PCOS, what a lot of people don't realize is that PCO PCOS is really driven by insulin resistance. So polycystic ovarian syndrome, there's kind of this triad of hirsutism, meaning facial hair growth, obesity, and oligomenorrhea, so irregular, irregular menstrual cycles. Those, that's a common triad of PCOS. And what a lot of people don't realize is that PC, PCOS, it's caused by elevated insulin resistance. And it increases the risk of developing type 1 diabetes three to five-fold in a young woman. So if you listen to Mark Hyman or listen to some other podcast, podcasters, you realize that if we fix the insulin resistant, resistance, you can fix the PCOS, PCOS. So a lot of these doctors, they'll straight jump to estrogen or hormone replacements they'll jump to um, different different solutions for PC, PCOS but what we don't what they don't realize is that this is mainly caused by insulin resistance so if we if we fix the insulin resistance we can fix the PCOS now i wanted to read this last paragraph in this part 1 to finish it off and this passage is called treat the cause not the symptom so, whereas most diabetes are limited to a single organ system, 
diabetes affects every organ in multiple ways. As a result, it is the leading cause of blindness. It is the leading cause of kidney failure. It is the leading cause of heart disease. It is the leading cause of stroke. It is the leading cause of amputation. It is the leading cause of dementia. It is the leading cause of infertility. It is the leading cause of nerve damage. So literally all those things I just listed off are from diabetes. These are all the complications. Amputations, heart disease, nerve damage, dementia, infertility. These are all caused by, the leading cause is diabetes. So that's that's something to, to think about. And the real question is, is that as as the years go by, our understanding of diabetes increases. But what what we norm what we should expect is that if we understand the disease more, the complications should decrease. But we're obviously not seeing that. The numbers are only getting worse and worse. So the situation is getting worse, and the only logical explanation for this to happen is that our understanding and treatment of diabetes is fundamentally flawed. So that is what he's he's stating. I am I am agreeing. Again, we're treating the cause, not the symptom. So we focus so much, like we are obsessively focused on lowering blood glucose, but people don't realize that high blood glucose is only a symptom of diabetes, not the cause. The root cause of hyperglycemia in type 2 diabetes is high insulin resistance. So unless we address that issue, the epidemic of type 2 diabetes and all its associated complications will continue to get worse. So that is part one of... Dr. Jason Fung's The Diabetes Code is very short. It gives a nice background of diabetes and how, how insulin and diabetes were were coined and founded. And we're going to get into more how to prevent diabetes and other things in in later episodes. So I hope you enjoyed part one of The Diabetes Code. And make sure to tune in for ty- part two, part three, part four. And this book has part fives, uh, five parts, so I will probably be doing five parts as well. So I hope you enjoyed, and I hope you listen again.